all, welcome. Shana Tova, Gemarto. I haven't seen a lot of you for a long time, so please come over afterwards just to say hello because I really do love to see you here and to learn together with you. Um, I will make one more comment, and I do not mean this in a perfunctory way. If in any way I have um, hurt anyone's feelings or, or done anything that was inappropriate, I, I truly ask your forgiveness. And I, I do not mean to say this again in a perfunctory way. So I'm just going to let that be said. I wish you all Gmar Tov. I wish you a wonderful year. And may we have wonderful learning together for many years to come. I also want to say that I chose a difficult topic today, and I truly do realize that. We're doing a difficult section, particularly the Gog of the land of Magog story. I did choose it purposely. It's something that I thought about for many years, and we read it at the Haftarah on Shabbat of Chol HaMoed Sukkot this year. I think it's very, very important for us to engage with the specific readings that were chosen to be associated with the Shabbat, with the different holidays, and not just the Torah readings, but the Haftarot as well. These have been very, very important, certainly since late Second Temple times. And I think it behooves us, even if there's difficult Haftarot, to think about it and to think about why it was chosen in effect to be part of the liturgy of special days of the year. So as I noted a couple of seconds ago, you need a Tanakh, you need a handout, and I'm going to ask people to leave questions until the end because it is a substantial amount of material and I want to get through it with you. So as I noted a moment ago, on Shabbat Cholhamoet Sukkot, we read this very provocative and dramatic prophecy. It's the Haftarah following the Torah reading. And this is the prophecy of Gog of the land of Magog. And it appears in chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Yechezkel. Now a little bit of background on this prophecy and the prophet who actually delivered this prophecy. I ask you for a moment to look at the handout I gave you. I've got a lot of information that I hope you will look at on your own. But I want you to turn for a moment to your page three. Page three is essentially a revised version of a timeline of the Bible that I did in graduate school. And I'm not going to tell you how many years ago that was. I don't know if anyone here in the audience was in school with me, but um, it's something that we actually did as an assignment. And I ask you on your own just to read the parameters because it's not necessarily the conventional way of doing a timeline of the biblical period, but it basically assumes dates actually given in the Bible. Now, for our purposes, what I simply wanted you to notice is that Yechezkel's first prophecy in bold is 593 BCE, which is pre the destruction of the first temple. Now, Yechezkel, who's noted as Yechezkel ben Buzi HaKohen, was among the political elite who was exiled to Babylon in approximately 598 BCE, which is about 12 years before the actual destruction. In the years that were preceding 586 BCE, Yechezkel prophesied the coming destruction. 
right? The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. He talked about idolatry. He talked about violence. And this accounts for roughly half of the book, the first 24 chapters of a 48-chapter book. Now, I will ask you also, and I hope you look at it again more carefully at home and especially in preparation for Shabbat Chol HaMoed, if you look at page four, there's a lot of information there, but what I want you to focus on specifically is the larger organization of the second portion of the book. Now, you'll see a bunch of arrows and a bunch of underlines. What I'd like you to notice is that whereas the first portion of the book is essentially pre-destruction of the temple and therefore is reproving the people for idolatry, for violence, is foretelling the destruction of the Betamikdash, when you look at the second half of the book, you'll see that there is a change and that the chapters talk first about God's judgment against Israel's enemies. And if you look approximately at chapters 25 through 32, 25 through 32 here, it's called Dooms Against Foreign Nations. And you'll see a whole list of nations that Yechezkel prophesies will be doomed. And he delivers his prophecy during and after the fall of Jerusalem. So you see, for example, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Plishtim, Sor, Sidon, Mitzrayim, etc. And you can look at it on your own. These, again, are prophecies against nations. And you can look at it in the book of Ezekiel itself. Now, jumping ahead, in the prophecies that follow, which is approximately 34 to 48, Yechezkel's overall tone changes. This is post the destruction, and therefore when he talks about in explicit detail is not the sin and the fall of Jerusalem, but rather he talks about the restoration. And he does this in very graphic detail. Yechezkel does whatever Yechezkel does in very graphic detail. It's a fascinating, difficult book. And it takes a lot more attention than uh, we can actually give it this morning. But if you look at the chart that I gave you, you will see, for example, in chapter 34, he talks about the renovation of the leadership of the nation of Israel in his own inimitable way. And jump ahead. If you look, for example, at chapter 36, he talks about the cleansing of the nation and the land from sin. This is a big subject in the book of Yechezkel, cleansing. And some of these verses are actually taken into the liturgy in the Yamin Norahim as well. Some of you will remember the cleansing waters. That is derived from the book of Ezekiel. Um, it's actually a book that's very dear to my heart. I think one or two of you were here when I taught it many, many, many years ago. It's a big book, and it's a heavy book, and it's a difficult book. Moving forward, Nehi. Ah, we identified one of the culprits in Surrey. Okay, terrific. Um, moving ahead, chapter 37, the first 14 verses of Perak Lamedayin, of chapter 37, is the Atzamot Yveshot. It is the dry bones prophecy. And it describes either or both of the restoration of the polity of the nation of Israel. 
And some even suggest, and this is a well-known machloket, some even suggest that it alludes to the resurrection of the dead. That is a fascinating topic, and I think we'll probably talk about that perhaps before Pesach. Finally, the latter portion of chapter 37 deals with the reunification of the disparate parts of the nation of Israel, bringing them back, he puts galuyot, if you will, bringing them back to the land of Israel. Now what I actually, now that we've gone through 37 chapters in four minutes, what I really actually want you to look at is the end of chapter 37. So you need to have your Tanakh open. And I want you to look at the end of chapter 37. Remember, this is a chapter of hope and restoration. And it climaxes, if you have a JPS, it'll be on page 1241. But it's chapter 37, verses 24 through the end, which is 28. And I guess I'll ask you to focus specifically on 25 through 28. You'll see a lot of repeated words. But I think the sense that you'll get is that this passage promises an everlasting redemption. So if you look at the verses, and I ask you, I'll read in Hebrew, but please look at the translation if it is helpful. If you look at verse 25, I'm emphasizing the words ad olam, which means forever, purposely. And there will be a Davidic leader. I realize that, you know, I'm kind of glossing over that. Le'olam. V'karati lahem brit shalom brit olam. Unatatim v'hirbeti otam v'natati et mikdashi b'tocham le'olam. Okay? And I'm jumping to the last verse. V'yadu hagoyim kani Hashem mekadesh et Yisrael v'yot mikdashi b'tocham le'olam. Okay, so these are hopeful words. And they are hopeful words of restoration, possession of the land, leadership, covenant, sanctuary, all good things that the people are missing at this point in history. And the word that is emphasized over and over and over again in this passage, as you all noted to me, is le'olam, ad olam. Now, in the Bible, when you talk about olam, you're not talking about space, but you are talking about time. So le'olam is a kind of designation of the future indefinite. Le'olam kind of means forever. And I'm not sure what translation you have here in the JCS, but that's probably the closest that you would have. Now, if God is promising at the end of chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel that there will be an everlasting covenant, an everlasting land, an everlasting leader, an everlasting sanctuary, would you expect that what would immediately follow this declaration would be the coming true of this promise? And many of you are aware that chapters 40 through 48 of the book of Yechezkel 
are a hugely detailed description of a temple in the future. Now they are in themselves very difficult chapters because many of the descriptions and the rules and the ideas are somewhat different than what we read about in the Torah, in earlier portions of the Bible. And that is a whole shiur, more than one shiur in and of itself. The commentators talk about it, it is harmonized in certain ways. There is, it is perhaps suggested that this is a temple of messianic times. There are many different ways to deal with it. But the bottom line is, it's a nice, good prophecy. It's a prophecy about a beautiful temple with lots of water and, and wonderful leadership and every inch described a fabulous architectural plan. So if you're going to talk about a promise for everlasting everything under the sun, wouldn't you think that the next thing you would do is what? Describe the temple that will be the fruition of this promise. Okay? So that's what we expect. And yet, look at chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel. What we have instead is a kind of interruption. And the interruption is this story of the invasion of Gog of the land of Magog. Okay? Now we're going to look, we're going to have to jump through it very quickly. So I encourage you to read it more carefully on your own. But I will tell you, by the way, just as a, an introductory point, I am purposely calling it Gog of the land of Magog. I think in popular literature today, everyone says what? Gog of Magog, right? Gog and Magog. Um, and so too in the New Testament. But the truth is, in its biblical origins, we are talking about Gog of the land of Magog. And the events that are described in these two chapters are not only provocative on their own terms, but as we're all aware, they inspired this extraordinarily rich literary tradition in the Talmud, in the Apocrypha, uh, in the New Testament. We call it apocalyptic literature. So what I want to do with you today is we're going to explore these two chapters, and we're going to consider the questions What's the pshat? What do they mean in their plain sense? Second, how does this prophecy fit into the larger content, not only of the book of Yechezkel, but of the Bible as a whole? And finally, and perhaps most on our mind at this moment in the year, why do we read an excerpt from this prophecy as our Haftarah on Shabbat Chol HaMoed Sukkot? Okay? All right. So that's what we need to do. Now, <laughs> okay, all right, so we're obviously going to be skipping around a lot. I am going to point you to certain verses in the text. I'm also going to suggest to you how to divide up the text. And then again, I hope you will spend more time on it on your own. I am here to give you guidance and food for thought. I hope you will email me, talk to me afterwards with ideas. Here we go. First nine verses. What will happen? First nine verses, what will happen? If you look at the first two psukim, one and two, Aleph and Bet, and I will read them, and again, look at in whatever language is most comfortable. Vayehi debar Hashem elay lemar, ben adam simpanecha el gog eretz hamagog, nesi rosh meshech v'tuval, v'hina ve'alav, v'yamarta 
now let me just summarize all that for you. Yechezkel is instructed to prophesy against this character, Gog of the land of Magog. What is going to happen? What will happen? The text tells us that God is going to draw out this Gog who will attack together with other fortified nations and they will come from where? The north. Okay, they will come from the north. And most scholars see this as a collection of mercenaries. An army of mercenaries from the north. Paras, Kush, Put, Gomer, Beitur, Gama, etc. You can look at it on your own. Now one question I want to raise with you is, who is this Gog? You ever hear of him before? Well, now you have, right? <laughs> if you Google Gog, Google Gog, actually. All right, that slips off the time. If you Google Gog, you will get a lot of literature. But it's an interesting question. Can we identify the names in verse 2, in Pasuk Bet? What is Gog of the land of Magog? Let me give you some information. Gog clearly is an enemy from the north. The meaning of the name is uncertain. As far as the location, Magog, it does appear in the book of Bereshit, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 10, I believe that it's verse 2, which describes what we like to call the table of nations, and you can look it up on your own. A son of Yefet, the son of Noah, is referred to as Magog. So, B'nai Yefet, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yaban, Betuval, Umeshech, Betiras. You can look it up on your own. So, there is a reference to this Magog. Now, just to kind of finish this, Tuval and Meshech that are referred to in these verses as well as some of the mercenaries from other nations that are collected by Gog of Magog seem to be enemies from Asia Minor and they do appear earlier in the book of Yechezkel. You can look it up on your own in chapter 27. So, we do have some basis for understanding where this land of Magog is and we will come back to the word Magog. Who's Gog? Could we identify Gog? Lots of answers. Whenever you don't really know the answer to a question, there are many, many suggestions. Okay? Um, so I'm just going to tell you some of them. One kind of suggestion is that the word Gog is related to the names of real leaders of the past. Leaders of some kind of historical origin. Leaders who we have some kind of record of possibilities. There was someone named Gygus, the king of the northern country of Lydia, which is around Greece, and he died in 644 BCE. Another suggestion, and I hope I'm pronouncing these properly, Gagu, the ruler of Saki, north of Assyria. So one possibility is that the word gold is re referring to a name of a person who actually existed, but it's kind of like um, and I, I know I say this carefully, it's kind of like saying, you know, a new Hitler is going to come from the north. So that's one possibility. Another suggestion is that it's a title, like Paro, right? We have Paro throughout the Bible, and it's a title, like king or pharaoh. Another suggestion is that it has a mythological origin. 
For example, in Sumerian, Gug means darkness. Okay? Or in Akkadian, there's a god called Gagu. And I think perhaps along these lines, and if you want to take out your source sheet and look at source number one, perhaps the most helpful, although clearly non-definitive comment, is made by Yechiel Mashkevitz in the Dat Mikra series, which collects both traditional and ancient Eastern material. Look at source number one. Does everyone have it? Okay, there are more sources, source sheets here. You really do need to have the source sheet. So, may I ask if, um, yeah, here's two extra, there's more, and if people could pass it back. I think there's some people in the back who may not, who may not actually have the sources. Okay, we're just going to read the underlines, but I think that he says quite nicely. Me who go there is how I go. And I'm skipping to the underlines. Skipping again. What's the point? You know what? We don't have to be so bothered about identifying the origins of the word gog, of the word magog, because these are really just symbolic words, symbolic names. Maybe they come from historical figures, maybe they come from mythological figures. They symbolize some kind of invader who will come from the north to the restored land of Israel, seemingly, and we'll see this in a moment, in messianic times. Okay, so there's, we're going to come back to this. I want you to keep it in mind, but I think there's a, um, I think there's an educated, although not definitive, way of understanding both symbolically. Now, when we talk about messianic times, why do I say that? When is this story supposed to happen? Now, why do you jump to verse eight? When is this story supposed to happen? Let's see. Miyamim rabim tipaked ba'achrit hashanim tavo el eretz mishovevet mecheret. Mikubetzet meyamim rabim al haray Israel asher hayul lechorbat hamid, etc., etc. Vehi meyamim hutsa'a v'yashvu lavetach kulam, v'alita kashewatavo kanan lechasota aretz tiye, atavachol agapecha v'amim rabim otach. Okay, so looking at the first few words of verse eight, when is it supposed to happen? After many days at the end of years, something like that. It's set purposely in the indefinite future. Okay? Yechezkel uses unclear terms. Does it refer to the short-range future, or does it refer to the end of time? Okay? That's a very good question. It's unclear. But what is clear is that it clearly refers to a time when the nation of Israel, which had previously been scattered to many different lands, is what? is brought back to its own land and lives the Ashtula Vetach Kulam and lives in some kind of security in fulfillment of earlier prophecy. It could be the end of time, whatever that means. It doesn't have to be the end of time. But it's clearly a time when the people of Israel have been returned to their land and are living in security. And it's simply called Miyamim Rabim Baharit Hashanim. And I leave you with that. Okay, now, we talked about what will happen. We talked about when it will happen. Why will it happen? 
why will it happen? So take a look now at verses 10 through 16. We'll divide it up into 10 through 13 and then 14 through 16. Okay? And if you look at 10 through 13, why is this going to happen? Why is there going to be this attack by an indefinite enemy in the indefinite future? Why? Well, there are two answers given here in the text. The first answer, I think, is, is obvious from verses 10 through 12. Okay, why is this going to happen according to verses 10 through 12? Why? Because Gog is greedy, and Gog is aggressive, and Gog is immoral, and Gog has thoughts of destruction, and Gog comes and wants to plunder an unsecured land. Reminds you, for example, of what kind of figure in the Bible? Sort of like Amalek, right? And read through the verses more carefully on your own. In 10 through 13, there is a description on the human level of a greedy, aggressive, immoral, plundering enemy and of others. I didn't read verse 13, but you'll see there, there are other nations who are waiting to collect the booty once the attacking nations do their work. So that's one answer. It's going to happen because there is this horrible, greedy enemy. Okay? It's like the free will. I'm going to ask you a whole question at the end. Okay? So this, it's, a, it's a question of human free will. Right? Now, what is the answer given in verses 14 through 16? What is the answer given in verses 14 through 16? 14 through 16 gives another answer to this question. And see if you can find key words. They're always helpful. What's the answer given in those verses? Why is this going to happen according to those verses? Yeah, to sanctify God's name. Okay? Notice the emphasis on the word, and some of you, I think, Suri, I met you when I spoke about this word, the word to know in the Bible. All right? If you look at verse 14, Teda, you will know. And even more prominently in verse 16, this is going to happen so that the nations will know before their eyes when God sanctifies himself through this whole attack of the nation of Gog. So the second answer is on a divine level to sanctify God's name. Now this raises obvious theological issues which are not our concern at the moment but what the text does as biblical texts and prophetic texts often do 
is focused both on the human level and the divine level. It's an issue of human free will, but it is also clearly part of God's plan. And that's a longer conversation, which I'm happy to have with all of you and talk about other texts, but we can't do it right now. But I do want you to note that it's clearly here. Moving on. What's going to be the ultimate result? We talked about what will happen, when will it happen, why will it happen? What will be the ultimate result? Now, verse 17 essentially is a statement that at the end, when this attack happens, God is going to remind Gog of Yechezkel's prophecy. Okay, it's a bit, the, the verse is a bit confusing and the commentators have to play with it. But essentially it refers to what God will say to Gog. And I, there's a dot, dot, dot in the middle there. God will address Gog when all this happens and says, Ah, rhetorically, are you the one my prophets prophesied about? Now, in verse 18, we're actually hitting the Haftarah. Okay? So this was all like your homework to prepare yourself for the Haftarah. Right? Now we're actually hitting the Haftarah. And I want to look with you at verses 18 through 23. And let me just tell you that the actual Haftarah ends in chapter 39, verse 16. Okay, so if you flip the page for a second, you'll see that the actual Haftarah starts in the middle of the story. And I think that you'll realize that it kind of starts in, in a, you know, it's kind of a, an, almost an awkward place to start. But let's look at it together. Verses 18 through 23, where the Haftarah begins, what is going to happen? Twenty. This is a labriot for everyone all the time in this class. I don't know who it was because I'm looking down at my Tanakh. That's our rule. Oh my goodness. Rana, did you get both? Okay. Okay, so everyone is covered. Verse 23. Okay, so you just looked at a lot of verses. What is the ultimate result? What do these verses tell you is going to happen? What will happen to Gog? He's going to be destroyed, but how? Violently. In a great violent cataclysm. Okay? God is going to unleash the forces of nature. What does this remind you of earlier in the Bible? No. You're all correct. No. Some of you said Egypt, right? No. Okay, the blood, the water. No. Okay, Noah, Sodom. I think it has a, there's a lot of the fire and brimstone language. And what will be the ultimate result of this great cataclysm that you just read about in verse 23? 
God will be exalted and holy and known to the eyes of the nation. V'yadu ki ani Hashem. Now I wanted you specifically to note this verse. This would be again a whole other class and I'm actually kind of interested in it, but not for now. What do you think that this biblical verse is the source of liturgically? Kaddish, right. That's actually a very interesting thing to look into. If you want to, I might, you know, when I, when I have the chance. It's so interesting to me how liturgies develop that are used in ways very different from their origins in the Bible. So, but I do want to point out to you, and this is clear, that the Hitzkadilti, the Hitzkadishti, is the biblical source of the word Hitzkadal, the Hitzkadash. That we say all the time and in so many different kinds of contexts. Okay. Moving along, I think you're getting a sense of tone. And remember, you just now read the first group of verses in the Haftarah. It starts in the middle of the story. What happens moving forward in 39, 1 through 8? 39, 1 through 8. This is a graphic description of the defeat of Gog. A graphic description. Now, I will tell you that the first five verses in the graphic description, describe the defeat of Gog in a particular location. And what is that location? Look at verses 3 through 5. There, there is a reference to the defeat of Gog where? In the land of Israel. Okay? By the way, in these verses, does the nation of Israel take part in this actual war, so to speak? No. Okay, you're correct about that. There's something else you want to think about. What is the location of verses 6 through 8? Verses 6 through 8. Okay, there's a new location here. Good. Okay? Vishilachti, verse 6, Eish bimagog. Okay, the, the way this is generally understood is that these verses now refer to a defeat of Gog in its homeland, which ironically is unsecured. Remember, Gog was attacking Israel when it felt secure, and ironically, what is happening? Measure for measure, God, on behalf of Israel, is now unleashing forces against Magog and the area of Magog which feels secure and the verses that follow again talk about God's holy name that shame Kodshi Odia God's holy name is going to be exalted not only within Israel but Viadu Hagoyim Kiani Hashem this is the prophecy that will come to be okay so we have here a description of the defeat both in the land of Israel and then going back out to the land of Magog Okay, to the homeland, so to speak. What happens in verses 9 through 10? And we're still in the Haftarah. What happens in verses 9 through 10? Okay, very, very graphic imagery. Okay, what is that about? What is that about? The nation of Israel now does become involved. What does it do? It burns the weapons of the attacker. And the verse is very, very provocative. It suggests that burning the weapons of the attacker is going to supply enough fuel for how many years? Yeah, 
very, very provocative, enough fuel for seven years, suggesting that this enemy was a really fierce enemy, okay, extraordinarily well armed. And moving on in the text, after the people get involved with the burning of weapons, remember until now they haven't been involved. Now they are getting involved in another way. Okay, look at verses 11 through 15. How are the people, or I think actually, excuse me, it's 11 through 16. How are the people actually getting involved in verses 11 through 16? Burial. Okay, and if you even look at just the first, look at the first two verses, maybe three. The Hayam Bayom Hahu, verse 11, Etein Magog Mekom Sham Kever B'Yisrael, Gei Ha'ovrim Kidmat Hayam V'chosem Etiyat Ha'ovrim, V'kavru Sham Et Gog V'et Kol Hamono, V'karu Gei Hamon Gog. Ukvarum Beit Yisrael Leman Ta'er, Ta'er Ta'aretz Shiva Chodashim, V'kavru Kol Am Ha'aretz V'hayalahem L'Shem, Yom Hikavdin Um Hashem Elohim, there is a grand discussion of the burial of the dead. Okay, the dead are going to be buried. The land will then be cleansed. Why do you think there's so much discussion of burial? Well, why, there so, why does the text tell us there's so much discussion of burial? What, is verse, what does verse 12 suggest? Why is there so much discussion of burial here? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, actually, there's actually, I think, a couple of different reasons. First of all, as you all noted, you have to tell us that the land will be cleansed. And the land obviously is going to have so many, and this is not pleasant to talk about, so many burials because of the enormity of the defeat that it's going to take seven months to accomplish the burial. Seven years of fuel from the burning of the weapon, seven months to accomplish the burials. And I want you to note, and you can look at this on your own as you're reading the Haftaran Shabbat Cholam Oed, you look at this, you'll see there's a lot of expressions of numerousness and multitude. Okay? Hamono, Gay Hamon Gog. And again in verse 16, the city next to it is going to be called what? Hamona. Okay, there's, there's this emphasis on the numerous burials that will have to take place. What is another reason, perhaps, that burials are emphasized? Okay, look at verse 13. What is another reason, perhaps, that the burials are emphasized? And take a look at the Rashi that I gave you in source number two. Take a look at Rashi that I gave you in source number two. Perhaps this is a a more pleasant spin. Not pleasant, but a more um, positive. (laughs) Vahayalahem l'shem. It's focusing on verse 13, which says, That when the nation of Israel buries all the dead bodies, they will have much renown. Rashi Okay, so what's the idea that's being presented here by Rashi? And you can decide on your own whether you see it in the text. Israel's great name in this context will derive from the fact that they're doing what? That they're burying their enemies, which is a prominent theme in the Bible. Okay? 
And that is evidence of the way of the nation of Israel, of the way of Chesed and Rachmanut. There's obviously great emphasis on um, kavod and burial of the dead, you know, beginning perhaps with Maratha Machpelah, right? Um, and also speaking about the burial of enemies. So what ultimately we see here, and this takes us through the end of the Haftarah, is that ironically, God gives Gog a burial place in the land rather than the land itself. And this is where the Haftarah actually ends. I'm going to tell you briefly, and you can read it on your own. These are very difficult images. If you look at the next set of verses, Yudzayin through Chavalat, 17 through 21, we're not going to go through it. It's not in the Haftarah, but it actually describes the image of Gog as a sacrificial meal for praying animals, praying birds and animals. Now I don't mean praying with an A, I mean praying with an E which is an image of the complete defeat of Gog and a demonstration of God's power. It's actually jolting to us in the 21st century, but it is an image that appears in ancient Eastern literature. That is as much of the text as I'm going to go through with you at this moment before going to question number two. Okay, remember question number one is what's the plain meaning of the text? What was question number two? Okay. Anyone remember? How does it fit into the larger... Yeah, how does it fit into Sefer Yechezkel and into the Bible as a whole? Okay, so now that we are approaching the concluding portion of chapter 39, I think it's appropriate for us to go back and, and think about that question. Why are Yechezkel's prophecies of security and tranquility, let olam, let olam, let olam, let olam, everything's going to be wonderful forever at the end of chapter 37. Why are they abruptly interrupted with, would you read it, this is a violent prophecy? Okay, cataclysmic invasion, right? How does this section fit into its context of prophecies of hope and restoration in the second half of the book of Yechezkel? Right? Remember, this is post-destruction. Especially after the statement at the end of chapter 37 that there's going to be everlasting possession of the land, everlasting grit, everlasting covenant, sanctuary. Everything is going to be rosy forever. So I want to make a suggestion to you that I think will help us answer this question and may also shed light on the true identity of Gog of the land of Magog. Now, I'm going to ask you to go back to your content page in your handout. Go back to your content page in your handout. Okay? I'm going to ask you a question. Look at the section of Doom Against Foreign Nations. You can take the shortcut of using this chart. For homework, you should read through all the different chapters. All right? Okay. Now, what nation is not there that you might expect to be there? Well, I've heard a lot of different answers. Amale. Mitzrayim Amale. is there, so that can't be Amale. it. Amale. Not Amalek, like that's true. But what nation that you really think should be there? Yeah, I'm going to go with Babel. I don't know. A few people said it. Okay, I'm going to go with Babel. I think Mitzrayim is there. Okay, Lottie, look it up. I'll show it to you in a little bit. Um, I'm going to go with Babel. All right? Now, please think about this for a second. If you look, for example... Um, at chapters 50 and 51 of the book of Yirmiyahu. And Yirmiyahu is a prophet who's prophesying before and after the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, of the first temple. Okay, somewhat contemporaneous with Yechezkel. He's in the land of Israel, perhaps at the end of life he, he goes to Bitzrayim. But the bottom line is they're pretty much contemporaneous, <laughs> but in different locations. Look, two chapters, a 110 verse 
scathing prophecy of the ultimate destruction of what land? And look, for example, at chapter 51 of Yirmiyahu, verse 60. Okay, I'll give you a page if I can find it quickly. Um, page 1150. Just one example, and you can look through the chapters, Nudin and Allah, 1551 on your own. But this is the end. Page 1150, verse 60 in Jeremiah. Etc., etc., etc. And so here we have Yirmiyahu on and on about Babel, which makes a lot of sense, right? Babel is going to be is exiling the elite and destroying the temple and exiling the people, etc. But Yechezkel in 48 chapters never mentions what? Babel. Now, we can easily explain this by noting what? Something very practical. Where is Yechezkel living? In Babel. <laughs> okay, and where is he prophesying? In Babel. Okay, so maybe that explains it. <laughs> maybe that's the practical reason. Um, but it's still very striking, and it's a very conspicuous omission, and it's bothered scholars for centuries, maybe even millennia, because in a way it makes no sense. Yechezkel is prophesying the restoration of the nation of Israel. New leadership, new heart, new spirit, protected from sin, political revival, spiritual revival, unification, a new temple. But the one thing that could make it all happen is what? The defeat of its captors. And who is its main captor? Okay? So, um, this is really the one nation that would need to be judged and defeated to make it all happen. And so one suggestion, and you can think about it, is that Gog of Magog is actually a veiled reference to what? Babel. Babel. Okay? I, that's the suggestion I want you to think about. There's going to be a nation coming from where? The north. That brutally attacks the land of Israel. And the implicit message of this prophecy is that this nation, well, the explicit message of this prophecy is that this nation is going to be destroyed. Maybe the implicit message is that this nation actually is Babel. But it's written in code. Okay, we're very into codes these days, right? Da Vinci code, lots and lots of codes. Let's think about the code for a second. Um, I need to have your hand out ready. Can we prove this? No, we can't prove it. We can't prove it. But we can speculate. Let me just show you a couple of little suggestions, or perhaps uh, buttresses for this speculation. Go to chapter 26 of Yirmiyahu, verse 2526 in the book of Yirmiyahu. Someone has a page. Please tell me what it is. I'm sorry? 1073, I think, right? Is that right? 2526? I hope I got the right. Okay. Okay, now, take a look. Take a look at verse 26, and you'll see a reference that Okay, there's a description of kings from the north, and last of all, the king of Sheshach shall drink. Do you ever think about Sheshach? Take a look at your source sheet. Okay, and tell, look at Rashi. Does anyone uh, tell me quickly what the number is here? Okay, in source number three, this is Rashi on this verse. Shesha, Kubabel, what is that? The Adbash. Okay, now you know what Adbash is? You have a lot of it in the liturgy. You saw a lot of it in the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah. It's this code game. 
Um, how best to describe it? Aleph is tough, right? At, bash. Okay. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet in code. The second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the next letter. So you can figure out on your own. I'm just going to write it here. Sheshach. If you use this method, it's going to end up being what? But we know that it's going to be bet, bet, and the final, the cuff, is actually the letter right next to it, which is lamed. Okay, so we know that already in the book of Yirmiyahu, and you can look, I just noticed the footnote here in JPS actually says a cipher for Babel. Okay, so we know that Sheshach in code equals what? Babel. Okay, now, what do you think? Again, this is just a suggestion. Um, can we play a similar game with the name Magog? Similar but not exact. Similar but not exact. What could be the code of Magog? Okay, think about it. What could be the code of Magog? Right in the Hebrew, Mem, Gimel, Gimel. Okay, want to think about it? All right? The code, perhaps, go one previous letter, and reverse the word, and what do you get? Okay, what's one previous letter for the two gimels? Good, okay, so can people see the three markers? That's so great. Okay, actually, I should have had this here. Okay, so you have two bets. Okay, and this is gonna become a lamed. Okay, and then, let's take this and reverse it. What do we get? Okay, take it or leave it. Um, I can't give you an article to support it. My guess is that, you know, there's stuff out there, but um, just something I want you to think about. Now, in addition, you know, if you want to try to support this, um, again, I can, I can look for, you know, specific support that I don't have right here. But another thing that I just want you to be aware of is that the, there, I think, is ancient Near Eastern um, proof for the Magog Babel identification, and that is historical. When Babel rose to power, Nebuchadnezzar's father defeated what nation? Assyria, right? And he did so by forming an alliance with the king of Medea, right? Parasmadai, which he did by marrying the daughter of the king of Medea. And if you look at the Bible, you'll see that the provinces that are identified as allies of Gog are provinces of Medea. Meshech, Tuval, Gomer, Turgama, Togarma, etc., etc. They're all allies of Babel under Nebuchadnezzar. So essentially the point is that Gog's allies in the Bible are Babel's allies in the Bible. So maybe that means that Babel equals Magog. Okay? So you can think about that. I actually think the code here is very resonant, but it's something you want to think about. Is our chapters 38 and 39 really telling the people of Israel something about Babylon, okay, which is their current captor when Yechezkel is prophesying. They're all living there before, after the destruction. Now, if so, what is Yechezkel trying to do? What is Yechezkel trying to do, if that is the case? What is God trying to do through his prophet Yechezkel, if that is the case? Maybe the people will think that it's all very nice. Maybe the people, maybe, you know, God will save us in the near future. But what could happen in the more distant future? Babel is still a very strong power. What could happen in the more distant future? Maybe Babel will attack again. And even if it's not Babel, it can be some other 
future nation that's going to attack in the future, the nation of Israel, some superpower that will attack the nation of Israel in its homeland after it's restored from the current diaspora. Maybe this is what is on the mind. Yechezkel is very graphic and detailed. Okay, you want to cover all the different possibilities. So, before you even talk about the restoration of the temple, and after you say everything's going to be everlasting, le'olam, ad'olam, le'olam, 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 what do you have to cover? The possibility that anything can happen again, that history can appear Okay? And this is very likely what is being addressed in this prophecy. Now, if so, what is the message of these two chapters about this possibility that Babel or another superpower will again attack the nation of Israel after they are restored to their land in the time of the Babylonian exile? What is the answer that is given? Now, if you look at the last verses in the chapter, which is, I think, 22-29. Go back to chapter 39 of the book of Yechezkel. If you look at chapters, verses 22 through 29, Chafbeth through Chaftet, and this is not in the Haftarah, but it's, it's crucial, what you will see is that these verses reinforce the very point of the inclusion of the story of Gog and Magog in the Bible and in the book of Yechezkel. And that is, they make the point that what Yechezkel is prophesying is that the nation of Israel will never again be prey, so to speak, P-R-E-Y, to foreign nations. The only reason they were ever exiled to Babylon to begin with is because what? They were bad. Because they sinned. Okay. Rana says they were bad. Okay. Not so yet. They didn't do good things. That's what I always told you. You can never tell a child you're bad. You always have to say you didn't do a good thing. Okay? All right. They're exiled because they did bad things, because they sinned. Once they're restored to the land and they're no longer sinful, no nations will be able to defeat them. No nations will be able to attack them successfully. And the defeat of Gog is going to make this clear to the nation of Israel and to all nations on earth. And so God's name will be sanctified. So look at some of the verses. Look, for example, at verses 22 through 24. What is going to happen on page 1246 in chapter 39? <speaking in Hebrew> Okay, and again, you see the same idea emphasized in verses 28 through 29. And what is the point? A key, key point in the book of Yechezkel is that other nations are going to think that the reason the nation of Israel falls, the reason they are captured, the reason they are exiled, is because they are a weak nation with a weak God. Okay? And a very, very prominent and important point in the book of Yechezkel is the message that the nation of Israel suffered, the nation of Israel fall, the temple is destroyed because the nation of Israel sinned, not because they have a weak God. Once they are restored and they are not sinful, idolatry, violence, whole host, once they are restored, no nation will be able to successfully attack 
and defeat them. And this is a huge, huge, huge message in the book of Yechezkel. And you have to think in terms of the people who are living at that time, okay, who are living before, during, and after the destruction. What are they thinking? History can repeat itself. What are the nations of the world thinking? This is some nation whose holy temple was destroyed and was taken captive to another land. What are people thinking? The key message in the book of Yechezkel is that it is about God's plan, not about the weakness of the people or the weakness in the ancient Near Eastern mind of the God of Israel. Okay? Now this leads us to our final question, which is good. Um, and what is our final question? Who cares? Right now, too. Um, why do we read from the prophecy of Gog of Magog as our Haftarah on Shabbat of Chol Hamoed Sukkot? Um, I think you will agree that's a rather unsettling prophecy. Okay, is this what you expect to read when you come to Shul? It's not, it's not exactly uplifting, and it's not pretty, if you don't mind. Okay, so why do we read it? Now I've heard many. Many, many suggestions over the years. And, you know, if you look it up, you'll find many different suggestions. Um, you can decide what appeals to you. I can, uh, one suggestion, I think, uh, these are homiletic suggestions. I think this is Rav Hirsch, that um, Gog sounds like Gog, which means a roof, which is a strong permanent covering, versus a Sukkah, which is a more flimsy, unstable covering. Or the suggestion that the victory over Gog will take place at the end of time on the holiday of Sukkot. There are lots of different suggestions that are made. But I think that the truth lies in a very simple understanding of the role that the story of Gog of the land of Magog played in rabbinic tradition, plays in the mind of Chazal as they are setting up the liturgy for all the special days. Now think of it. The fact that we're reading this Haftarah means you're having this quest. Okay. Um, why was this chosen? Why was this chosen? Why did Chazal choose? Okay, let's say from late Second Temple times, whatever it is, why did Chazal choose to have you read this particular, this particular passage, the story of Gog of the land of Magog? Now the truth is, although the great defeat of Gog, the great defeat of Gog is only mentioned in the Bible in chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Yechezkel, is it anywhere else in the Bible? The answer is no. Okay? The destruction of Gog, however, to the rabbis came to be identified with a great apocalyptic war. Maybe it would be fought by God. Maybe it would be fought by a human being. Mashiach ben Yosef was one suggestion. Mashiach ben David was another suggestion. There's a huge, huge literature about this final apocalyptic war that would be fought at the end of time, in messianic times, such that the nation of Israel could be redeemed in the end of days. And there's a huge literature on the subject, and it goes on for hundreds of years, and it's a fascinating topic for another shiur. But what's very relevant to us is that although the great defeat of Gog is only mentioned in chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Yechezkel in the Tanakh, in the Bible, the rabbis identified it with another set of wars in the Bible that were also associated with messianic times, that were also associated with the end of days. And I want you to turn to chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah. Okay, now you know why I put that in the title, right? Okay, so I believe it is your page 1402. Wait, I don't know. Yeah. 
Now, just to give you a drop of background, we're actually doing well here. The prophet Zechariah, who's identified in the first chapter as Zechariah ben Berechia ben Ido, began to prophesy. I believe I gave it to you on your timeline. Just turn back for a second to the timeline on page three, okay? He first prophesied in 520 BCE. Now, why is that significant? When was the temple destroyed? 586. 586. Okay, proximate, right? Now, what happened in five, all approximate in 539 BCE? There's a king named Koresh, Cyrus, right? Yeah. From Parasu Madai. And he had conquered Babel, and he issued an edict giving permission to the people of Yehuda to renew their religious practices. And the sixth chapter of the book of Ezra tells us that Koresh ordered that what could happen? The rebuilding of the temple. Okay, and he even gave instructions for temple vessels to be returned from Babel. Zechariah the prophet was crucial in the effort to galvanize the rebuilding of the temple. And the temple was completed, it was a process, about 515 BCE. Now he began to prophesy in what year? Five. 20 BCE, approximately the second year of the king Darius of Persia, whoever that was. Um, now, it's not clear exactly when he delivered the prophecy in chapter 14, but we assume that it's a late prophecy, right? And that it dates sometime after 518 BCE. But the real key thing is that it dates after what? Not only after the destruction, but after the Jews are permitted by Koresh, by Cyrus, to return from the Babylonian exile. Okay, so let's think about this. Think about who Zechariah is, what he's prophesying, when and where. Compare it to Yechezkel, what he's prophesying, when and where. You got it all straight? Okay, now let's do it and keep Gog of Magog in your mind. And now let's do an overview of chapter 14. And admittedly, we're going to have to do it quickly. Um, let's look at the first five verses. First five verses are actually fascinating. And this is important, right? You're going to read this very soon. First five verses. Well, you read it right now, but then again in a few days, right? This is about great battles that will happen in a day that is coming against Jerusalem, right? And if you look... At the first three verses, Hinei Yom Ba Hashem, V'chulak Shalalech B'kirbech, V'asafti Et Kol Hagoyim El Yerushalayim L'Milchama, V'nilkida Ha'ir, V'nashasu Habatim, V'hanashim Tishachavna, V'yatsa Chatsi Ha'ir Bagola, V'yeter Ha'am Lo Yikaret Min Ha'ir. Now moving on to verse three, V'yatsa Hashem V'nilcham Bagoyim Ha'hem Kiyom Hilachamo Biyom Kirav. Okay, so just stop there for a second. A day of the Lord is coming when Yerushalayim is going to be stormed and plundered by all the nations whom God is going to do what with? Gather them for war against Jerusalem. And verse 3, following this battle, God is going to make a war on those attacking nations. Okay, does this sound like something you've heard before? Looking on, no? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Looking on, verses 4 and 5, which we're not going to do together. Um, remember we talked about unleashing forces of nature? What does 4 and 5 describe? Okay, very explicitly. What kind of natural phenomenon? 
Earthquake, right? Earthquake. Do you see it? Yeah, yeah. Do you see the earthquake? Vira'ashu, Haraash. Remember Vira'ashu in Yechezkel? Was that the parting of the north and the south and the east and the west? What? This is an earthquake. It's all going to be turned around. The land is going to move beneath you, so to speak. It's going to be an earthquake. Moving on. Verses 6 through 15. You will get to read this closely on Sukkot. Verses 6 through 15. What are going to be the ultimate consequences of this event described in Zechariah 14? What are the apocalyptic consequences, if you will? Look at verses 6 through 9. Vahayaba yom hahu, lo yiyeor yikarot v'kipaon. Vahaya yom echad, hu yivada Hashem, lo yom v'lo laila, vahaya le'et erev yiyeor. Verse 8, Vahaya bayom hahu yetsu maim chayim mirushalayim, chetyam el hayam hakadmoni, vichetyam el hayam hachron, bakayit vachoref yihye, and finally, Vahaya hashem lemelech al kol haaretz, bayom hahu yihye hashem echad, ushemo echad. Please reread these carefully. This yom hashem, this day of the Lord, is going to bring remarkable developments. The world is going to be illuminated in a continual day, okay? A supernatural radiance, a continuous day. What does that remind you of, by the way? It's like pre-creation, okay? A continuous day. And fresh water is going to flow from Jerusalem, transforming the earth. What does that remind you of? Garden of Eden, right? All very pre-creation. And at that time, God is going to be king over the entire earth, and Jerusalem will dwell in peace. Cause for another shiur, but not today. Um, but you get a sense of the ultimate apocalyptic consequences here of a feeling of pre-creationness. I realize I just created a word, okay? But pre-creationness. Right? What else? We're not going to look at 12 through 15 together. That actually describes the plague and panic that's going to ultimately affect the nations that war Jerusalem. But I want you to turn to verses 16 through 21. All right? And you really will just look at 16 through 19 together because that's what we need to talk about. Look at the very end, end of the Haftarah. Vehaya, verse 16, Vehaya kohanotar mi kohagoyim, habaim al Yerushalayim, Vealu mide shana vishana, lehishtachavot lamelach Hashem tzvakot, vilachog, kasukot. Vehaya sher lo yalem eit mishpachot haaret el Yerushalayim, lehishtachavot lamelach Hashem tzvakot, velo alehem yiye hagashem. 18. Mitzrayim is not subject to this rule. Why? Because they have the Nile. Okay? Mitzrayim will get other punishments. Asher yalu lachog eshak hasukot. And verse 19. Zotia chatat mitzrayim vachatat kol hagoyim asher lo yalu lachog et eshak hasukot. Okay? So Zechariah addresses the survivors of the nations who had fought against Jerusalem. And he announces that they have to make an annual pilgrimage to do what? To bow down to God and to celebrate what? Sukkot, the holiday of Sukkot. And those who fail to do this ritual won't get rain. Or in the case of Egypt, will be punished otherwise because they're not dependent on rain. Now, what is so significant about this chapter in Zechariah for our purposes? 
Okay, how does it help us understand the relationship between the story of Gog of Magog and Chag HaSukot? Remember, we have to get back to that question. Right? How does reading this passage in Zechariah help us understand why we read the violent, catastrophic story of Gog of the land of Magog in Shabbat Chol HaMawed Sukkot? Okay, now the reason, I think, as, as I see it, again, the, the prophecy here in the 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah begins with a siege of Jerusalem by all nations and ends with a forecast of the security and tranquility of Jerusalem. What does that remind you of? Okay, an attack by all nations of Jerusalem and then security and tranquility of Jerusalem. The rabbis, Chazal, identified the war in the 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah with what other war? What do you think? With the story of Gog of the land of Magog. Okay? The rabbis identified these two wars, even though we don't have any Gogs and Magogs in Zechariah 14. Let me just give you one example of this. If you look at your source number four, this is simply a quote from Rashi. Remember when Yechezkel says, you know that all this catastrophe is going to happen, then you're going to realize that God's prophets already have prophesied it. What did Rashi comment here? Kigon Yechezkel u Zechariah. She'at hu nitnabei al melchemet Gog u'magog. There's an example. To the rabbis, to Chazal, Gog u'magog equals the enemy that comes in chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah. Right? They're equivalent. Now, if that is the case, if that is the case, why do you think we read the prophecy of Gog of the land of Magog on the holiday of Sukkot? If that is the case. Well, we read the 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah as the Haftarah for when? The first day. Okay, Zechariah 14 is read as the Haftarah for the first day of Haftarah. Okay? And I think for obvious reasons, correct? Without getting into homiletics or metaphors or implications, there's a direct reference to the holiday of Sukkot in Zechariah 14, which we will talk about a little bit more in a moment. Now, if in the mind of Chazal, it's the same war and the same story, then it makes sense that Chazal, that the rabbis would also choose to have the story of Gog of the land of Magog read sometime on what holiday? Uh, yes. And the choice is? Yes, Shabbat Halamoe, which by the way doesn't happen every year. So think about that. Um, now, there is a striking difference, however, between the Gog prophecy and the Zechariah 14 prophecy. Okay, and I think that this is true both in substance and in tone. The prophecy of Gog of the land of Magog ends with the scene of horrific doom against the enemies of Israel. Remember all the earthquake and the dead bodies and the pestilence and the birds of prey and all that stuff. It ends in a very graphic, very graphic scene, right? Burial squads, animals praying, etc. What is repeatedly emphasized in the Gog prophecy? What is repeatedly emphasized? No Jews die. Okay, let's go, let's go back to details. But the point that I'm getting at to get through this and we can talk about other things. What's repeatedly emphasized in the Gog prophecy 
is not just the defeat of the enemy, but why the enemy has to be defeated. And that is emphasized verse after verse. You can look it up. I'll just quote chapter 38, verse 16. Why does all this defeat have to happen? So that all the nations will exalt, God will be exalted in the eyes of all the nations and will be holy in the eyes of all the nations. Remember, a major theme in the book of Yechezkel is that God has been slandered because of what has happened to the nation of Israel. Right? The nation of Israel is God's nation. God must be a weak God if the temple is destroyed and the people are captured and exiled. There needs to be a vindication. And the key theme of the Gog prophecy is that the defeat of Gog through horrific plagues is going to lead to public acknowledgement of God by the nations of the world. Okay, They've slandered God, but now the greatness of God will be known to all. Now, this is, of course, the story also of what earlier story in the Torah? The story of Egypt. The purpose of the oppressive plagues and all the makot and the wonders is that the nations of the world will know God. Right? Right? That is one of the major reasons for the exodus from Egypt is not only that Israel will know God, but that the nations of the world will know God. So it's sort of like the one second. Okay. Okay, good. Good. Absolutely. So we go back to the story of Egypt and the theme of the Gog prophecy. Okay, God's reputation, the recognition, the public acknowledgement by not only Israel but all the nations is made to be through the defeat of Israel's enemy. And the truth is, in the story of Gog, this is where the story ends. But I want to ask you a question. Is that where the story ends in the story of Egypt? Does the story of Egypt end with the defeat of the Egyptians? How does that story really end? Shira. The Shira, that's true. Okay. But what I want to suggest to you, and I think the Shira is actually an important part of it, Lottie, what I want to suggest to you is that the story of the Exodus from Egypt in the Torah doesn't really end with the defeat. The story of Egypt isn't over when Paro evicts the nation of Israel, when the Egyptians are defeated at the Red Sea, or even when they sink. But I think the end of the story comes a little bit later. I want you to turn to chapter 18 of the book of Shemot. Someone had a page? Excuse me. Let me just find um, 18. Yes. Page 151, chapter 18 of the book of Exodus. And this is a story of who? Look specifically. It's a story of Yitro. Remember Yitro comes and brings Moshe's wife and daughters. And I want you to look at verses 18, 8 through 12. Look at verses 8 through 12. What does Yitro do? Moshe tells him, Right? Okay? Vayomer Yitro in verse 10, Baruch Hashem Asher Hitzil Atchem Yad Mitzrayim Yad Paro. And what does he say in verse 11? Atayadati, Kigadol Hashem Mikol HaElohim. And then what does he do in verse 12? Vayikach Yitro Chotein Moshe Ola Uzavachim Lelokim. 
And what do you think about it? I think that's the end of the story in the Exodus of Egypt. The story isn't over with the Exodus or with the defeat of Egypt or even with the song. The story is over when the nations of the world, here represented by what character? Yitro, proclaim and worship the God of Israel. Now, if you think about it in that light, what's the problem with the story of Gog of the land of Magog? If the story of the land of Gog of Magog is an echo of the story of Egypt, it kind of leaves us wanting, right? Because the prophecy of the Gog of Magog ends on this negative, this very negative place. We've defeated the enemy, and therefore everyone is going, all the nations are going to recognize God. But what is different about the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 14? How does that end? It ends in a very, very different way. It's true. It describes the defeat of an attacking enemy on the nation of Israel. Okay? It describes the defeat of an attacking enemy on the nation of Israel. But the truth is, that's just the beginning. It doesn't even talk much about ultimately the nation of Israel worshiping God. What is the emphasis in Zechariah 14? What is going to be the outcome of this whole attack and this whole salvation? To Zechariah, the destruction of the enemies of the nation of Israel is only the precursor to what ultimate goal? The universal recognition and worship of God. So in the Zechariah story, in Zechariah 14, unlike in the Gog story, the model is complete. Because you don't only have the defeat of the enemy as the vindication and the source of exaltation of God's name, you also have the next part. It's not just recognition, it's a kind of invitation. Okay? It ends with the recognition and worship by the nations of the world of the God of Israel. It's sort of like the Yitro story. Now you can ask the question, why would Yechezkel end his story in one way and Zechariah end his story in another way? Okay? What would be the common sense answer? And by the way, it is possible they each both had the same vision of the same war. There's discussion of this idea in the Rambam, in Maimonides. It could even be that Yechezkel and Zechariah saw the same vision of the same war. And yet, each reported it in a slightly different way. And what do you think that would be? Yechezkel is prophesying from Babylon, right? He needs to tell the people, you know what? History won't repeat itself. It won't happen again. Okay? He's emphasizing the downfall of the captor. Most of the people are still living where? In Babel. They've watched the destruction of the temple. They've heard of the destruction of the temple. Zechariah is living when? After the edict of Koresh, after the declaration that the Bet HaMikdash can be rebuilt. And therefore, he has a much more positive attitude. He's looking for the restoration of the temple, for the possibility of all nations coming to worship God on the holiday of Sukkot. Now, the interesting thing is, even though the reports in the Bible of Yechezkel 38-39, the Gog and Magog, of Magog story, and Zechariah 14 story, have a very different tone and end in very different ways, how do you think Chazal read them? Chazal saw them as one. 
one harmonious piece. Chazal, the rabbi, saw in the prophecies of Yechezkel of Gog Magog and Zechariah 14 one harmonious vision at the end of days. And what was the symbol of this harmonious vision? What was the symbol of to Chazal of this harmonious vision of the universal, not just recognition, but worship of God at the end of days? The holiday of Sukkot. The holiday of Sukkot. Chag HaSukkot became the analog of Yitro's sacrifice and celebration of God in the Exodus story. Now, if you look at the source sheet I gave you in Source 8, you'll see that there's an, Rabbi Yosef Karai in the 12th century actually makes this point. He knows, he equates the exaltation of God, the Hitzadilti, the Hitkadishi, in the story of Gog and Magog with the celebration of Chag HaSukkot in the story of Zechariah 14. So Chazal Sukkot is the universal recognition of God but, and the universal worship of God. Now, it's not surprising, and I think you're all aware of this, it's not surprising, the idea of Chag HaSukkot is about the idea of the universal worship of God is reflected in numerous other rabbinic statements. Okay? So I gave you a couple of examples um, Consider the statement in the Talmud in Sukkah 55. There is a statement, Shiva verse 4 5, Shivim Karim connected me, connected Shivim Rum. One of the 70 bulls that are brought as a sacrifice in the holiday of Sukkot represents 70 nations. The universalist theme. 70 bulls, 70 nations. And it was these sacrifices that brought the nation's reign. And it's interesting, if you look at Josephus' antiquities, he actually reports that the um, other nations would come on Chag HaSukot to bring sacrifices. It's actually interesting. Um, a rabbinic tradition in Avodah Zarah 3, and this is your source number 6, describes an oft-quoted dialogue between God and the nations of the world. And its way it goes is that the nations of the world asked for an additional commandment over and above the Noahide laws, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. And what does God give them? Take a look at source number six. What does God give them? Okay? And if you jump ahead, what, what's the one that God gives them? Okay? So the answer is in this, in this passage that they ask for an extra commandment God gives them Sukkot. Now commenting on this Talmudic passage, Rabbi Shamshan Raphael Hirsch in Choreid, and I gave it to you with source number seven, says something that's homiletic, but I think it's very, very interesting. He's responding to the question, why is the mitzvah of Sukkah selected as the one additional commandment that God gives the nations of the world over and above the Noahide laws? And he makes what I think is a very interesting suggestion. So look at me at source 7, we're almost done. Madu'a nifchara mikol ha-mitzvot ha-masiyo dafka ha-yeshiva ba-sukkah. Echad ha-chata'im ha-machri'im shal reshit ha-enoshut ha-yachet v'niyat here in 
סמל הביטחון בהשם, כאין כפרה על עשיית מגדל בבל. Okay, so to make a long story short, Rav Hur suggests that in rabbinic tradition, to Chazal, the celebration of Sukkot represents a kind of correction of the sin of humankind in the story of the Tower of Babel. Interesting? I find this idea that Sukkot is a kind of atonement for the Tower of Babel to open many fascinating possibilities. And that would require another shiur, but I just want to finish with you. Um, and I encourage you to think about that on your own. Okay, think of Tower of Babel versus Sukkot. She conjure a lot of ideas in your mind. But for our purposes, connecting the holiday of Sukkot to the Tower of Babel reveals a deep biblical truth and deepens the relationship between the holiday of Sukkot and the stories of Gog and Magog and Zechariah 14. Because in biblical thought, the Tower of Babel represents the division of humanity and the beginning of idol worship. The holiday of Sukkot, on the other hand, doesn't represent the division of humanity, but rather it represents what? The unification of all nations under one God at the end of time. Right? Okay? It's about the unification. And in this vein, it's very interesting that in much the same way that Zechariah expresses the idea of the universal worship of God in Messianic times through the symbol of the celebration of Sukkot, the prophet Sephania, okay, who lived approximately 641 to 610 BCE, he prophesied in the time of Yoshiahu, he expresses this same idea of the unification of all people, all nations of the world in Messianic times. And let me ask you to look this up. It's Sephania 3.9. Okay, and I'll be done in a minute. Sephania 3.9, page 1377. Page 1377. How does Sephania express this very same idea of the unification of all people, all nations in Messianic times? Look at verse 9, Sephania 3.9. What's he talking about? What he is suggesting is that in messianic times, God is going to transform the speech of all nations, right, into a clear language so that they can reunite and worship God in unison. It's the annulment of the Tower of Babel. Like the celebration of Chag HaSukot to Chazal in the Bible, the Tower of Babel is the image, like the celebration, the annulment of the Tower of the Babel is the image, like the celebration of Sukkot, of the reunification of all human beings at the end of time. So let me conclude. I think we took exactly the right amount. The prophecy of Gog of the land of Magog, delivered by the prophet Yechezkel, after the destruction of the first temple, provided much-needed assurance to the nation of Israel living in Babel, living in Babylon, that once the nation of Israel was restored to its homeland with religious and political sovereignty, it would never again be prey to foreign nations. In Hazal, in the rabbinic tradition, the Gog prophecy is part of a larger vision of the final redemption of the nation of Israel at the end of time. There will be a grand war in which Israel's enemies will suffer utter defeat. 
But this war will be followed by the unification of all humankind under one God. And this is the message of the Haftarot that we read in Chag HaSukot. It's the vision of Gog and the prophecy of Zechariah 14. Every year, all nations will worship God and celebrate the holiday of Sukkot. If Pesach commemorates the exodus from Egypt and Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, then the holiday of Sukkot looks toward the ultimate redemption of the people of Israel and all human beings. The lesson of Tanakh, the lesson of the Bible, the lesson of Chazal, the lesson of the sages, the lesson of the high holidays, the Amim no Ra'im, and the lesson of the holiday of Sukkot is that while conflicts may arise and wars may be fought, we always hope and pray for a time when all human beings are united in respect and morality under God. May we live to see a time when all human beings will celebrate Chag HaSukot together in a spirit of peace, joy, and goodwill. I wish you all Gmar Chatimah Tovah.